0: Welcome back to the Unchanging Education podcast with me, Dan Clemens, Um, titling this episode Rife Primer, and the description reads that this season is mainly devoted to Philip Rife, the third great TC teacher-centered figure of the Locke-Bagley-Rife, you could say trio, Contra-SC student-centered Rousseau-Dewey-Friere. and setting up a deep dive into his masterpiece, Fellow Teachers, in the upcoming episodes. I'll preface the ep with some topical comments, too, also tying up loose ends from past notes. So it's going to be a little bit all over the place. Um, I'd say maybe maybe less than half of the episode is really directly devoted to Rife, uh, but it's all meant to kind of, uh, still moving through my notes, this kind of literature review approach, after a very long hiatus, where I haven't had a new episode in a while, so um, in terms of these this topical uh, preface, I will begin with Chris Rufo, and um, a recent article where he's talking about. Well, he's certainly been interested in the long march through the institutions, and in this most recent article, he starts talking about and thinking about countermeasures, countermeasures that are um, a strategy for reversing the long march through the institutions, and adding that it is something that has never been done before, institutional recapture. He says, if we are successful, the effort can serve as a model for other states moving from um, Florida elsewhere. But well, this idea of countermeasures and reversing and uh, recapturing, um, this, is, in a sense, is precisely what I mean by unchanging education. He then talks about um, a more... I mean, he indicates what we really need is a, a more heterogeneous um, you know, approach in education, where he talks about the universities, and I would argue K-12 as well, is becoming... Um, homogenous homogenous DEI diversity equity and inclusion morass and so certainly uh, we want less homogeneity and more heterogeneity um, that this um, homogenous morass is certainly undesirable and he he uses this term barbarians which is interesting Uh, it is a it's a term that Philip Reif um, is interested in as well and um but he refers to um, Daniel Borsten in 1968. Um, so just reading from the Rufo article where he quotes uh, Borsten, The new barbarians who rejected the ideals of the American founding and sought to tear down society. We must not be deceived by our own hypersensitive liberal consciences, nor by the familiar, respected labels under which... The new barbarians like to travel. Worstin wrote, If American civilization is to survive, if we are to resist and defeat the new barbarism, we must see it for what it is. So this certainly indicates a need to defend society and civilization from those with no appreciation of or for history in operating on or with a destructive ethos under the guise of creativity, imagining that destroying the status quo necessarily ushers in utopia. So he continues um, with talking about basically college-level policy changes um, for this reinvention. So he's using another term here. So we've got reinvention, um, kind of a, a countering the homogenous morass um, implying heterogeneity, reinvention, recapture, reversing, countermeasures. I think this is a very productive line of thinking. So reinvention. My proposals include redesigning the curriculum to align with the classical model. Um, So we're seeing this term classical come up more and more in education Um, and I suppose it's being seen as opposite of something like maybe progressive or maybe just woke. But I think that uh, classical is very much akin to teacher-centered, and I've implied, almost just kind of cashing in on the the, the same letters, um, that teacher-centered or TC um, can in some ways be understood as, um, you know, being related to traditional and conservative, Uh, But perhaps also traditional and or classical uh, might do well, um, just in terms of an association. Okay, abolishing the EI and uh, replacing it with equality, merit, and colorblindness. And I'm seeing this from colorblindness more and more. Um, I don't know if it's um, preferable to what I would think of which would be multiculturalism. Um, that seems to have been the precursor, in the same way that um, uh, that the self-esteem movement became SEL. Um, you know, I remember multiculturalism well before this sort of anti-racism move. Principles, adopting the Calvin Statement on Institutional Neutrality, uh, which I, I think um, I've seen the the uh, Heterodox Academy, um, supporting this kind of idea of institutional neutrality. Um, Again, getting the explicit radical politics out of education. Uh, Restructuring the administration and academic departments, recruiting new faculty with expertise in the classical liberal arts tradition, and establishing a graduate school for training teachers in classical education. And this is one of the two ideas, um, well, it's very close to w- w- one of my um, ideas that I would endorse in terms of what we can do to really, um, you know, reverse the trend, as, um, as Rufo is obviously discussing here. One of the first, this first suggestion that I first heard suggested by uh, VDH, Victor Davis Hansen about um, some idea of uh, exemptions or exceptions. Um, for highly educated people to skip ed school. Uh, For example, anyone with a master's degree wouldn't need um, a Bachelor of Education as well, that they could simply just become teachers. And so this would kind of um, limit the influence that a, a particular ideology would have upon new teachers, and it would kind of break up this ed school monopoly. And the other idea which I think is being hinted at here, um, a graduate school for training teachers in classical education um, would be to have explicitly teacher-centered ed schools uh, because every ed school, I think, I would, I would argue probably in the world, is explicitly student-centered. And that student-centered is kind of the uh, primordial Trojan horse um, or the... Uh, the sort of Mott in the Mott and Bailey um, moves and defenses uh, that we've seen for um, a particular ideology in education. Okay, so um, he concludes here, ours is a project of recapture and reinvention. Conservatives finally have the opportunity uh, to demonstrate an effective countermeasure against the long march through the institutions. The left's permanent bureaucracy will be dead set against this gambit, but if it succeeds, a new era for higher education and for the country is possible. And I know that it, while it's focused on higher education, um, my focus tends to be more upon K to 12. But anyway, uh, a new era, countermeasures, reinventing, uh, recapturing. seems to be the, uh, the right way to go. Um, another, uh, article, it's an older article that I've only recently become aware of. Um, but I think it's really, I think it's gotten a second life because of the the COVID lockdowns. Um, it's an article by Kirshner, Sweller and Clark. Why minimal guidance during instruction does not work. And I just wanted to pick up a couple of the highlights from the article. Um, it's interesting that the um, one of the important ideas is the idea about long-term memory um, and that what often happens in these kind of these new style, what I would call more student-centered approaches, um, they try to just get around the importance of long-term memory and they use uh, much more sort of short-term or, um, in computer terms, more RAM-intensive. Um, but the first thing I thought of was this importance of uh, a long-term memory of education itself, and that what is often, all too often happens, is the, the eliding of most of the great content of education, most of the great ideas of education, really anything outside of the, the student-centered dewey Freire triangle is um, explicitly neglected um, partially just as a, as a natural consequence of um, i think an unjustified overemphasis or uber emphasis on the the ideas from these three figures now Rousseau's is obviously more of a background figure but i don't think it's an overstatement to say that dewey and frieri have dominated an entire century of, um, of pedagogy of educational theory And how that, uh, and it's basically taken hundred years to get from the from the idea phase um, through pedagogy, through teacher training, and uh, through teaching itself, and that now finally, after let's say hundred years, that these like we have the graduates of this like of of this kind of student centered uh, approach that these graduates are now uh, now walk among us as young adults. Um, so this uh, this importance of memory makes me think of a term used in a text I'll get to later, cryptomnesia. Cryptomnesia refers to remembering something that's been lost, some lost idea that's been forgotten, um, remembering or rediscovering it, but experiencing it as as a discovery of new knowledge, even though you're just remembering something you forgot. You seem that you've come upon something new. And that the best discoveries we can now make um, is through us kind of a going under, a rediscovery to learn what we've forgotten. If education itself had more of a long-term memory of education itself. And again, but fortunately we can avoid um, this this problem um, by falsely presenting um all these important discoveries as new knowledge. We actually don't need, I mean, what I'm suggesting is the task, um, you know, for example, that Rufo's talking about, about recapture, reinvention, and a countermeasure, et cetera, um, that it's all there in the teacher-centered literature. Um, and so uh, all that, all we need to do is just go back to what we already know uh, and to kind of to, to, to rediscover a literature that's been lost is uh, really central to my project here okay so long-term memory incorporates a massive knowledge-based that is central to all of our cognitively-based activities and certainly any whenever we're talking about knowledge-based um, we're certainly talking about TC um, which is much more common than Uh, An activities base or a skills base, as in SC, student-centeredness. I've got some um, Chinese New Year fireworks going off just outside my window here. Uh, Forgive the the background noise. Problem solving, um, which is central to one instructional procedure advocating minimal guidance called inquiry-based instruction, places a huge burden on working memory working short-term RAM, as I said, working memory. The onus should be surely uh, on those who support inquiry-based instruction to explain how a procedure circumvents the well-known limits of working memory when dealing with novel information. Um, So since it's this new thing of inquiry and de-emphasizing a base of knowledge that the onus is on them, on the new, the reformers, the sort of student-centered progressives, however you want to phrase it. But what all, what all too often happens is that anything that does seem to c- sort of uh, coincide with student-centeredness never needs to give an account for itself. It's student-centered. It's against teacher-centered. Therefore, it, it's necessarily good. Okay. So, um, this also gets us into another idea that Rife will talk about, where talks about the um, you know the problems in education, what he calls the problem-solving racket, that an emphasis on uh, problem-solving, and even kind of hints at this idea that you know problem-solving and critical thinking, the idea that we can make these educational commodities in and of themselves um, is incorrect. Uh, so this problem-solving racket, an inquiry they just present themselves as being better than the bad status quo. And this is largely why, therefore, they don't have to account for their own shortcomings, as is being called for in this paper. Um, so yeah, this. so we think of the problem-solving racket and the skills absurdity, um, and certainly chief amongst that is the so-called critical thinking skills, while neglecting the necessity of a an actual base of knowledge. So PBL, uh, problem-based learning, um, which in some ways is very similar to inquiry, um, seems to mesh with ideas in, for example, the philosophy of science, but it also fit well with progressive learner-centered views, of course, emphasizing direct experience and individual inquiry. Um, I think this paper is really before uh, lived experience or even ways of knowing had become uh, more commonly used. Uh, Why, he asked, should educators look further than the traditional inductivist and empiricist explanation? Why isn't asked because of a too-confident false consensus that educators look further than the traditional because it's duly bad. All right, the status quo... Uh, which is ostensibly teacher-centered, is normatively bad be, because it sort of does some sort of harm, and it's descriptively bad because it's dull. That it's harmful and dull, and it's harmful because it's dull, and it's dull because it's harmful. And there's just this sense, um, even using this term of um, meaningful. We're going to see this this word is being used um, that that all these reforms they get you know. Labeled as well, you know, as more meaningful, right? And it again creates this this kind of strawman that uh, traditional or conventional is meaningless, um, and that solving problems is meaningful and skills are meaningful. And it um, it skirts; it doesn't directly say, well, you know, like knowledge is not meaningful, knowledge is meaningless. But th- there is, I think, this kind of attitude. Is implicit here and in student centeredness. Um, okay, so PBL, problem centered education, is ostensibly superior to conventional education. Students taught problem solving skills, in particular through the use of the hypothetical deductive method, and given problems to practice those skills they learn in a more meaningful way. It is assumed that because students are exposed to problems from the beginning, They have more opportunity to practice these skills, and by explicitly applying the hypothetico-deductive method, they learn to analyze problems and search for explanations, improving their comprehension. So I think that this, in some ways this uh, language of skills um, seems to appeal to people. Who think that you know education needs to be practical and and it should, and I, I think um, there's a, a commentary that's been made on this that I think is that really kind of brings this into relief um, from a blog. Um, so I'm going to go to kind of a commentary on this article by Colin Welch, Colin Welch of the Wheat from the Chaff blog. Um, Interestingly, you know, in in a, in, a, in the second post about the article, he says there's considerable disagreement over the efficacy of student-centered learning, despite its popularity with the Twitterati. He wrote, and also that one of the deepest tensions in modern education is, but I actually I might argue was, between student-centered learning and teacher-centered learning. I'm, I'm almost kind of shocked to read this that people still think this is sort of a a, a big open ongoing debate as if we haven't had a, a monopoly of student-centered learning for a hundred years. Um, but um, that's not to say that I you know, completely disagree with what Welch is saying. I certainly appreciate his commentary here. It can also just be a product of my own personal experiences. Uh, he writes, I'm interested in exploring more about this topic, and today I will set the framework for my exploration. He's got a great paragraph here, which I think, um, you know, embodies the attitude that the PBL inquiry um, student-centered crowd have explaining why it's uh, the conventional education is, you know, kind of meaningless. Okay, so he begins, the student-centered or minimally guided approach is characterized as self-paced and interactive and aims to replace lectures with active learning. It enables individual students to address their own learning interests and needs, rather than memorize government-mandated predetermined content. Again, this is at the heart of the straw man, which I've actually said is a more severe straw man. It's a hollow man that all these kids do. They just sit and they get lectured at and they memorize, you know, unimportant stuff. Continuing, government curricula is always in danger of obsolescence. Again, memorizing obsolete things um, in boring lectures. Indeed, the content relevant to a student's interests is constantly changing and growing, so students will have to continue learning new things throughout their life. In such a fluid environment, students need to seek solutions to problems without complete dependency upon an instructor and learn to reason on their own from the student centered point of view direct instruction by a teacher is by definition tedious subordinating and moribund we might add again meaningless okay meaningless memorization tedious subordinating moribund um again it's a straw or a hollow man in extreme bad faith I would argue. Yet, I think this has basically become the mainstream view in education. Um, so all, all that is really happening, and I think this is touched upon in the article and something I've tried to talk about a lot, is that, put it this way, you don't have to make a case for how good what you want to do is if you can just land base how bad the other thing is, right? This is analogous to something like um, political attack ads. Right, I mean, vote for me because the other guy is, you know, evil or terrible or whatever. Rather than actually giving a case, um, and it's a, it's a, it's an effective political strategy. Um, but this is part of the problem that has captured education, that you just make this, uh, again, this bad faith, hollow man argument uh, about the other side, and that becomes the justification for why your ideas are good just because the there, there's, there are different ideas and those ideas are bad and your ideas are different than the bad ideas um therefore implicitly that your ideas are good but it really doesn't hold uh one thing though one of the great understatements i think from this uh, from this blog is that the teacher-centered approach has fewer champions these days. Uh, I think this is an an understatement. Okay, another addendum um, is, uh, uh, very briefly, a recent Forbes article about um, teachers need information on scientific research, but it's only a first step by Natalie Wexler. Thankfully, um, thinking about how things start to be turning in the right direction, um, in education. Um, I know that thankfully the word content appears five times. And I think that content is in a way, um, you know, it's related to this whole idea of, um, knowledge and long-term memory, um, as in the, the previous article. Strategies may not work without content-rich curriculum. Um, Again, this is uh, certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, an emphasis on strategies, um, strategies, activities, competencies. Um, that there's been this move away from content or a content-rich curriculum, what I would probably call a knowledge-based curriculum. I think that's um, I think that's really a, one of Edie Hirsch's um, big emphases. One basic problem is that for many of these strategies to work. The curriculum needs to include meaty content. right? So meaty content is uh, one of the phrases, and rich content as well as content rich. Um, so why do we need to emphasize content in education? I mean, how can education not have content? I mean, what happened to the content? Where did it go? Well, it was sacrificed on pedagogy's Dewey and alter and it was supplanted by experience we need to get rid of content and we need to replace it with experience so again thinking about this this kind of cumbersome term of cryptomnesia we are not learning the importance of content okay uh we forgot it uh, partly uh, intentionally in a way it was elided by students that are in hegemony Right, so we, we seem <laughs> superficially to be discovering that content is important, um, but really we've we've always known that. Uh, we're just remembering that we forgot, and we seem to be discovering, but it's just a rediscovery of some forgotten truth. Okay, so those are the um, some of the topical. I apologize again. I've got fireworks going on outside here. It started as soon as I started recording. Um, There's a great, um, a very short um, quote here from Victor Davis Hanson, and what's interesting here is that you know he is very keen on this uh, critique of the therapeutic in education, the therapeutic problem in education. Um, It's just fluff. It's therapeutic. He, he wrote here. The biggest thing that plagues us today in young students, unfortunately, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that plagues us today in young students, unfortunately, is that in this therapeutic curriculum we have, they tend to be arrogant and they tend to be ignorant. That's a fatal combination. They're very zealous about a particular contemporary issue. But they don't have the linguistic skills or the prose style skills or the analytical skills to really make a successful argument. Much less do they have a body of historical knowledge they can draw on for examples. And yet they're quite confident in their limited ability. Confident in their limited ability. Ignorant and arrogant and um, partly he puts this at the feet of the therapeutic curriculum and okay. seems to think it's the biggest thing that plagues us today with young students. So, uh, again, classical would be used here um, uh, as opposed to therapeutic education. Um, I think that classical can be a good term. Um, I, I think that there is an association people have with, you know, the classics. Um, with, uh, you know, with, with Greek and Latin, um, which I think is fine. Um, but anyway, I, as you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always thinking in terms of teacher versus student centered, TVSC. Uh, but anyway, a classical teacher centered versus therapeutic student centered education. So this is smuggled in via an intuitive student centered revolution the student, the child, the individual that really referring to the individual all the time, the individual, the individual learner, the individual student, the individual child. This, in a sense, is a way of framing education as therapy, Uh, that the individual who's undergoing therapy, um, another cumbersome word, but is the analysand, um, the analysand. Because no one would want an overtly therapeutic education. Uh, I don't think that parents really think of themselves as sending their kids to therapy all day, every day. Everyone seems to agree that student-centered is good. And so just use that phrase to bring in all the rest, right? Um, that there's this idea is that there's this completely new approach and that we're constantly reminded that educations are doing something new and that we need to change education um, now, once everyone basically, once there's a consensus, and this consensus has been going on for, as I argue, a hundred years. Um, but once you get everyone in agreement that what we really need is change, we need to do to do things differently, then it becomes extremely easy to smuggle smuggle in any agenda. Right? We're doing things differently. We're we're changing things. We're not doing things the traditional way. Um, and so when you get extreme radical. Ideas and situations in schools. I mean, it should be seen as it's, it's logical. And again, um, so therapy is a big part of this. And so, as I mentioned earlier, that COVID and online learning have really revealed this great forgotten truth in our cryptomnesic situation. So, you can say that there's a kind of a, a broad private agenda under a, a pleasing title, and that's how we smuggle in any radical ideas or policy. And then this, this Motton Bailey, that you can always revert to, to whatever defense, whatever extreme or radical thing that's being brought in under some kind of student centered guise, um, you can always just say that it's student centered, right? its 21st century. And again, it just completely sustains itself and props itself up through a hollow man about, um, you know, a, a bad, mean, boring, teacher centered, um, you know, former model that we're just moving away from. Uh, while there is online learning, there is no online teaching. It's a myth. And to put and it put to the crucible the primary, the primacy upon learning as autodidacticism. So those who want to learn still learn well, usually refer to this as self-motivated, self-directed, or intrinsic. These students are in a way less affected um, because they still have a kind of a constant learning experience. So the idea here is that yes, there is still online learning, kids that are online, who are motivated and want to learn can still learn just fine, um, because they they really are engaged enough to be able to um, learn and, and teach a lot themselves. But usually, these are already higher-level students, and this is why the, the gap is growing so much, because, as I said, I know it sounds confusing, but yeah, there is still a lot of online learning happening, because kids can learn on their own. Essentially, they can teach themselves um, in, in, in some ways. But there is no such thing as online teaching. Of course, you know, we've been doing online teaching for years, right? So what does this mean? But um, I think that students who are really struggling, and if their learning is is really dependent upon, you know, lots of guidance, that they're not really able to direct themselves, um, and that they're not really inquiring, you know, as is this, Again, this Rousseauian assumption is that every child is, you know, it sort of has this ravenous curiosity and this inquisitiveness uh, to want to learn, and uh, you know that's it's too rosy. It's not really the case. Anyway, at at least it's sort of meant as a as a kind of a hypothesis, um, or it's meant to stimulate um, thinking that there's no such thing as online teaching, but certainly there is online learning. Students who rely upon the extrinsic pressure inherent in teaching, but absent in learning, as it's been reinterpreted, as aforementioned autodidacticism or as student-centered inquiry, No, the centrality of the teacher and teaching is perhaps the great lesson of this whole online COVID thing. The centrality of the teacher and teaching is the great lesson here. so yet it is unlikely to be an unlearned lesson because it is just the haunting reminder of that which education has strained to unlearn the teacher is the decisive element so what we should be learning is from this online experiment is the importance of the classroom and the teacher that you take away the you know the, the the real live experience of having a teacher in the classroom and you ha- other than really like the very best students um they're just massive learning losses for most kids and i think one of the ideas that we want to draw from this is does this show us that any kind of self-directed um Problem project based inquiry um, that it's really suspicious. Anyway, the teacher is the decisive element. Again, hopefully we can learn this lesson or relearn this as we already knew it before. But again, since the entire, since basically all, almost all of educational pedagogy is militated against this. Idea, um, it's unlikely that this is going to be learned. Unfortunately, but I think that's the main takeaway from the massive learning losses that have occurred. Um, that I don't think that anyone in education, this kind of um, this homogenous, you know, pedagogical field uh, with almost no real debate, um, I don't think that they could have seen it coming right, that, you know, well, the the classroom and the teacher, that these are just, you know, um, that they're not really seen as central, right, the student can still be learning just kind of on their own in some sort of self-directed way, we don't need direct instruction or, you know, teachers in classrooms, Um, anyway, hopefully this, um, hopefully we can learn a lesson from this ourselves. But the teacher, the decisiveness of the teacher, it sure sounds like this, well, this big, bad, teacher-centered thing. Like, education already knows that teacher-centeredness is bad, um, which itself um, echoes a, a this traditional conservative or classical sentiment. Okay, I've already talked about some of these new articles. Um, so let me continue here. Kids that are self-directed in inquiry, um, This was the new way, along with this student-centeredness, a political literary emphasis, directly from Freire. So now we see it's a political program that most parents don't want. That's the other thing um, that online teaching has taught us, how explicitly political, or or you could also say globalist, Um, but anyway, I think we can think of it as a political program. Um, that has been built into education that most parents don't want and didn't really know about. And the recentering of the teacher teaching the class in the classroom, right? That, again, hopefully we can learn this idea of that, in a sense, in terms of education, we're not done with the 19th century yet. Um, thinking of Neil Postman here, that um, that's what the classroom is. It's a 19th century technique, and that's how it works best and all of this emphasis on the 21st century classroom what better example of the 21st century classroom than you know students learning online for 2 or 3 years in some places and how well did that work the classroom and indeed of course the teacher remain indispensable i think contradictory to the the core assumptions of the of the homogenous pedagogical class. The online digital experiment thrust upon us has been a complete failure because it directly disempowers the teacher most of all. That is why students are so adversely affected. If you disempower the teacher, it's the students that suffer because education is teacher-centered. It doesn't directly limit how much any self-directed person can learn. In the same way that any kid could go to a library and, and study and read every night and every weekend. And, you know, they'll be just fine with, you know, subpar teachers or schools. It only deprives them, I mean, these, these really, these higher-level, high-functioning students... Really, they're deprived of the sociality of the classroom. They're, i.e., their friends. Without a real classroom, there's no real teaching because there's no real teacher. Only a, a digital one, right? Virtual. So, before I continue on, I should make this note about you know therapy and politics, that. Uh, certainly, I think that these things are seen as very different, um, this problem of therapeutic education and this problem of, of this highly um, white-hot-charged po- like political um, presence in education. But in some ways, there is a kind of an unholy alliance with therapy and politics. Um, we could think of it as um, a kind of a radical therapy as politics. Or maybe even as a radical politics that's meant itself as a kind of a therapy for society, um, but I think that I think we're aware of the political problem much more so than the therapeutic problem, um, and I guess I'm suggesting we need to be, um, you know, alive to both of these problems, and yet also that they may just be two halves of the same problem. Anyway, back to online teaching. Um, which I'm arguing doesn't exist, online learning. And so this should make abundantly clear to all that the primacy on a kind of a student-centered learning emphasized over a teacher-centered teaching is a failed, or at least a failing hypothesis. Teacher-centered teaching, student-centered, child-centered, learner-centered. Uh, I mean, it's all well-meaning, but I think it's misguided. And, but the most important thing is that it's misguiding. And when abundant evidence cannot contradict a theory we know we are not in a rational or scientific modality because a hypothesis tested and floundering must necessarily be open to change otherwise it's just propaganda but theory especially politically infused has this fatal flaw of needing to double down on its failures to compensate failure with the bluster of ill-certainty." Okay, another topical um, preface point is from Dr. Monica Osborne, this this article that Why Teachers Can't Be Activists. I think there's a lot of good points being made here. Um, But first I want to point out that it seems that she's making the point that really, she's saying teachers should not be or shouldn't be acting as, as activists. Um, but actually, I mean, I would interpret it, you know, only slightly differently and actually take the title quite literally, that teachers literally cannot be activists in the sense that when you are in the establishment and you're wielding the institutional power in the kind of majority position, um, then this is not resistance, right? This is not a minority position, right? So it would be a misnomer to call teachers activists in the sense that it most often is, um, because it's just compliance. It's a new ideological conformity, right? I mean, if the, if the state is telling these teachers they need to act like activists, then that's just compliance um, that is sold and selling itself as activism. I mean, it's certainly, it's easy to imagine teachers who, um, you know, who are sort of would do or say what they're told, and they're afraid to speak out. And they would, you know, ostensibly they're they're activists, um, but it's almost like a, a kind of a branding of like a, a capital A activism, as a kind of a proper noun that doesn't have this spirit of activism at all. It's a kind of a bad faith branding, right? That you know our teachers need to be activists. I'm going to talk very briefly later. Um, there's an article in, a, in an in Ontario um, ETFO Voice, I think it's the, the primary the K to twelve newsletter, about being a super rad gender warrior, and again, if this is the coming from the you know from the uh, like approved channels, um, you know if you basically if if your employment and your good standing depends upon compliance, um, then it's not activism, right? Again, it's compliance. Okay, so um Osborne starts off with the um good point as it's very often um being reiterated that indoctrination is not education, and um, when i when I read this, I often think, well, I mean it's it's re-education right re-education is not education uh indoctrination re-education uh, in a way it's the same thing. But I want to preface this with, the, with a, an idea um, from Philip Reif and also perhaps made more popular by um, Dennis Miller about inactivism. That what we really need is inactivism. Um, that activism is, in a sense, undesirable. And what does this mean? Inactivism, to slow down the process of cultural decline, he says. They can become inactivists. They'll do less damage that way inactivism is the ticket. So maybe teachers can be activists in this Reifian sense if they're speeding up the process of cultural decline. But better off in in Reif's, um, as Reif might suggest, inactivism would be better because that slows down rather than speeds up cultural decline. So in a mild form, even if student activists do no damage at all, all right, um, if they neither improve nor harm, um, and so have a, a neutral effect, that if student activism was harmless, and this is basically the position that almost everyone held about five years ago, that kids, you know, seemingly acting out in activistic ways on college campuses, um, that this was seen as terminal in college, and was not going to spill out into the real world. So this is the kind of idea that we might have heard, that it was just kind of harmless. You know. Even if that were the case, then we face the simple problem merely of wasted time and energy that is simply unproductive. Right? That the, this activism, it's harmless, you know it's just basically they're, they're not doing anything. They're just kind of spinning their wheels. They're just wasting their time and energy and you know, spending their university years unproductively. Uh, in a way that it doesn't really benefit or hurt social justice, it doesn't benefit or hurt the student. Compared to something like, say, reading, right, And time spent, let's say, reading in the library or wherever, uh, which would not be unproductive, which would actually be productive. If a generation of students had this same passion for reading as they have for, I don't even want to call it politics, but certainly activism, uh, then we might be much better off in the short term. So even if this, this political activism, this student activism, was, was harmless or neutral, um, we should still be able to identify that it's still a problem because if it's a waste of time and energy, it, it doesn't accomplish anything or it hurt anything. That's, even if that were the case, that still would not really be an acceptable state of affairs for education, for educators, for people who care about education. Another big problem is if we say that education is broken and that the kids themselves have to fix it, we're falling victim to some very strange utopian thinking. When I say utopian, I might also be saying Rousseauian. It's too hard to improve complex systems, especially as young, inexperienced people lacking resources and expertise. It requires too much finesse and breadth. So activism becomes and it's in its severe form, that it can actually be destructive and not just a waste of time and energy and, and money to an extent. So the more destructive form um, is, well, let's replace this with that. Let's replace x with y. And it's justified, again, by the wholesale corruption of the irredeemably bad status quo. It's the same thing um, as, it, as it occurs in education itself. The status quo is bad, Um, and so, I mean, there's there's this sort of carte blanche um, just just to start making any changes, uh, just to attack the status quo when there's this very flimsy idea that, well, whatever happens, um, you know, whatever other alternative might emerge must be better because the one thing is bad, and it's very telling that the word change has this completely, you know, um, that change is seen as uh, categorically good, as if, as if no one considered the possibility that something can get worse, right? Change can be for the worse. But this is perhaps an admission that the activist lacks the scope of understanding to improve a system in a specific or targeted way. And the attendant virtue of radicalism for revolution as it signals purity or virtue and undermines good faith performers with ad hominem attacks as beneficiaries or sellouts who are adjacent or complicit with half measures to preserve their privilege based only in the evidence of their non-destructive position, right? If you aren't trying to d- destroy something as hard to someone else, um, then you're part of the problem. Okay, so th- that's a, a long note here, but okay, getting into Osborne's article here. She talks about teachers um, and, and the impressions that teachers make. Uh, I'll skip to the second part paragraph here. They gave me a gift. They gave me permission to think for myself, even if that meant disagreeing with them. They taught me how to think, not what to think, and gave me the skills to cultivate a vibrant capacity for pursuing inquiry rather than ideology. Certainly in inquiry, whatever problems there may be with it in a more technical, educational sense, um, we could think more of, of, the, of the pure, the higher sense of inquiry in terms of like open and free inquiry or scientific inquiry. Certainly better than ideology. Were all my teachers like this? No. But the ones I remember and respect the ones who I credit with so much of who I am now and what kind of teacher and person I became are the ones I've described here. And in retrospect, I realized that they were from across political and ideological spectrums. It didn't matter whether they were liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican. I learned from all of them because they didn't impose anything on me. They encouraged me to look for truth to consider various approaches, and to be fearless when expressing my views. Again, again, whenever we see like truth in this kind of oppositional sense, uh, well, aren't kids today also being you know encouraged to look for truth? No, um, in this ideological capture, the the sort of the the north star is justice rather than truth. And, and Jonathan Haidt makes this point brilliantly. Um, you know that, in a sense, education can't serve both masters. Now he talks about it in the university context, and I'm always kind of extrapolating from. I mean, a lot of the best um, content that is coming out here is very kind of university centric, and I'm I'm often trying to make the case. Of, well, this this equally is true in K to twelve. That we need, and so I, I'm always associating. Um, you know this. Teacher-centered as invested in truth versus student-centeredness invested in justice. That teacher-centeredness has to seek the truth and be fearless and considerate. But but student-centeredness already knows the truth, right? That it must act. Again, again, this, uh, I I think maybe I'll get into this Marx quote. The point is to change, not to interpret um, the world. That we only need to consider solutions because the problem is always ostensibly so clear. And yet, to inspire fear in those who oppose them. Uh, It's not fear of rebuttal, but fear of reprisal. Okay, back to the article. Um, Over the past few years, it seems that what I considered ideals for a teacher are now seen as dangerous. It's dangerous to let children, adolescents, and young adults think for themselves or ask too many questions. It's dangerous to allow them to form their own opinions that may deviate from the politics of their teacher or institution. They should vote the same, feel the same about every issue, from how to fight racism to how to define a woman and the limits of abortion, and they should become activists in all segments of their lives. They should chant and adopt mantras that prove their allegiance to the political activism they are being taught. I mean, this is just a, a definition of indoctrination or re-education. Um, so clearly the position here is that teachers ought not to behave as activists because it's a kind of a, a corruption um, of this sort of ideal or spirit of education. But again, as I've noted, the title has a different meaning for me that's less moral or normative and, um, well, uh, more kind of formally logical, I suppose, that this is not activism at all, right? Teachers telling kids what to do. Well, really, it's all three levels, right? Um, That there's this sort of this higher, this theoretical level that this activism is good, and that is being pushed upon teachers, Um, And teachers are pushing it upon kids. And, you know, we see most of the activism from the students or, you know, graduates themselves. Um, But that's because the teachers are supposed to act like activists in this way uh, because of pressure from, you know, from on high, from above them at more of an administrative level. So if this is everyone just acting in compliance with the expectations of you know the the institutions that they depend on for um for salaries or for credentials then it's just a misnomer like to call that activism it's not activism right i mean it cannot be activism if you're not taking a kind of a, a chance or a risk right if what you're doing is completely safe and that you're actually just you're meeting expectations you're doing what is expected of you um along with everybody else. Um, It's a very strange form of activism. It's probably not activism at all. So, this is not activism at all. State actors, civil servants, who are compelled by popular consensus in educational policy documents, are just doing what they're told, and pay no price, but actually enter deeper into a kind of Formal career reward structure, right, that um, activism can, is, is, you know, reliably, can, can be relied upon to, you know, advance your career in terms of, a, there's a reward structure built up for how much activism you're doing. So this is not activism. This is obedience, as I've said, compliance, Soldiers who shoot where generals point are not activists. They're following orders, and that's what the teachers and students are doing. What they're calling activism, they're following orders. They're obeying. They're complying. So I mean, I don't want me to be saying that I'm disagreeing. I actually completely agree with the spirit. It's just kind of this. Um, it's kind of a, a, a philosophical, you might say, kind of a linguistic or semantic divergence. So I see this as a similar situation. Teachers are only further compelling students' loyalty to state power because the, the state ultimately is, is, is a part of this. Uh, pushing this this important activism is so important and the passion of young people, etc. In, again, um, a paradoxical, state-sanctioned activism. State-sanctioned activism. But by definition, I say here, this is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as state-sanctioned activism. Well, if it's really true, of course, we'd have to amend that to say paradox. If a government institution like education wishes for teachers to adopt and promote a set of politics, I don't know how we can even entertain the notion that this is activism. Right? I mean, if your boss is telling you how you need to behave, uh, you know, the the correct attitudes and opinions, um, and you do. Um, And then you call yourself an activist. Um, Okay. So the next point is that this is an industry. Again, this is kind of all oxymoronical in a way. This broader logical contradiction that this is industrial or corporate activism. Acting in corporate or government interests, and expanding their reach into the youngest demographic. There are words for this, but activism cannot be one. Activists tend to be in a minority position against power and assume risk. But this is the majority position in education, and it's ultimately in the service of a new kind of power with zero risk. Continuing. Some schools have actually reconfigured their curricula to be activism rather than academics-based. Never mind that in many of these often private schools, children consistently perform academically under the national average. This is another idea that I think is really gaining traction and gaining steam, is that we're de-emphasizing academics and re-emphasizing activism. And, well, certainly it's no surprise that academic performance goes down because education has decided that academics are not that important. Activism is. These schools offer training sessions for teachers to instruct them in how to bring political activism into the classroom. I'm going to repeat that. These schools offer training sessions for teachers to instruct them in how to bring political activism into the classroom. Again, that's not activism. Like, that's like, you know, inverted commas, scare quotes, activism. Um, again, that's just following orders. That's obedient compliance. And that's just doing what you're told, right? That's why it's in, it's much more akin. Like, it's all a part of a, a broader uh, indoctrination or re-education. Type the phrase teaching and activism into your search engine, and you'll see how much of an industry it's become. Yeah, it's an industry. If you are acting in accordance or compliance with a large industry that's telling you what to do, that's not activism. Okay, continuing. Are they underperforming because of activism? Or, conversely, are they pivoting to activism to disguise or mask negligence and failure? So is, is this this emphasis on activism a kind of a distraction that is hurting academic performance? Or is there a sense that, I mean, the academic performance, let's just say like in reading, uh, I've seen recently that, you know, we need every third grader in the nation to be at, you know, a proficient reading level. Has it just been decided that, you know, that's really just too hard, that we're not going to do that? Um, and... But the way to make that palatable is to say, well, that's not what we were trying to do in the first place, right? It's not that we failed to be good academic teachers. Um, It's that we were invested in activism, which is basically just easier, right? Again, uh, to use a phrase I've used before, it's, I mean, academics is exact and exacting. Um, But just, again... This kind of, um, you know, pseudo-activism. It's not, it's not hard to teach because it's not rigorous and it's not hard for students either. So it also solves this sort kind of pass-fail, no-child-left-behind, growing success kind of model. too. so are they underperforming because of activism or conversely, are they pivoting to activism to disguise or mask their own negligence and failure? I'd love to know the author's thoughts on this. Okay, still with Osborne here. In some cases, the rationale sounds noble. Proponents of activism in the classroom say they want to teach students a sense of responsibility and to engage with issues of social justice. Again, perfect Mott, Bailey. We just care about, you know, justice. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that's the Mott position is to say, how come no one can read? Well, because we care about justice, you know, don't you? But these are the precise values that get lost when teachers bring political activism into the classroom. Instead of developing a true sense of ethical responsibility, which, in the words of philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, means truly seeing the face of the other human, regardless of who he is or what he thinks, we are ushered into the space of the political. For Levinas, this political space can never be ethical. It can never be a place where ethical responsibility flourishes. Political activism in the classroom extinguishes the fires of both free expression and compassion. We have all this activism. And again, certainly they will use a word like compassion, but again, it's more like a branded marketing word. uh, That it's not real compassion. And it's not about free expression either. I think that's abundantly clear. Free expression is not what they want, nor compassion. It is selfish, Osborne writes, seeking to fulfill its own agenda rather than empower original thinkers. Yeah, it's not about original thinking. It's uh, I, I keep saying, you know, it's about compliance and obedience and following orders while calling it self-activism. And it's about this, it's about a pressure to submit, which is not free expression or compassion. Quote, it undoes and unravels all of the critical values that teaching is meant to convey. Okay, so this is an excellent commentary by, um, by I think it's Dr. Monica Osborne. Um, in this penultimate paragraph, what is exposed is that activism shrouds itself as aligned with educational goals about citizenship and character education, but actually perverts these very goals and ultimately undermines education as such in the process. Activism is not sold on its own merits, but something that achieves other benefits. It's not as activism for activism's sake. It's activism for justice, justice being the telos here. But it actually degrades those capacities. It doesn't make the world any more just, put another way. But also it elides the academic or the traditional educational goals, too. Right? So by pivoting from academics to activism, we end up neither with the goal that activism is ostensibly seeking, um, unless it's, that's just a, you know, a cultural revolution, um, nor do we get the academics. So this is the worst of both worlds. You trade in what education can do for some other vision, but that new mission fails, and so does the old mission. And again, that old mission, you know, you know kids sitting down and boring lectures and memorizing useless things, remember, this is all justified on that lie, right, that the old mission of education is ostensibly unimportant. So who cares about academics anyway? Kids don't need to learn all these, you know, all this, you know, boring, useless information. And if you, as soon as you accept that premise, you know, that's when you're about to be sold a bridge. Right, this um, this whole student-centered activism, again, a century—a century of this. So anyway, it's a double failure and it's a disaster. But activism is not itself invested in education or academics, nor as citizenship, nor as character education, character or character education. That's not what ac- activism doesn't care about these things. Again, it would. And again, through st- student-centered kinds of arguments, none of these things really matter. Education, academics, being a good citizen, or having a good character—it's more akin to a self-replicating AI, right? Like the classic paperclip maker example, right? It's activism with the goal of making more activists to make more activism, and on and on. Again, we think of um, you know free area this notion of a permanent revolution that's constant it's constantly renewing itself all right so the last question sorry the last well the last quote here um coming to the end of the osborne article indoctrination is not education an activist in the classroom is not a teacher i'll repeat that an activist in the classroom is not a teacher and you know logically thus also A teacher in the classroom is not an activist. Students look to teachers to help them navigate the world and to think critically. But when partisan political opinions infiltrate the space of learning, the power of critical thought and free expression has been diminished and the educational space ceases to exist at all. Or, you know, re education is not education. So in some, this is not activism of for or part of education. It's activism against education. It's it's education you know, devouring itself. It's literally anti education. Perhaps the best word for this <laughs> for anti education is ignorance, right? It's a pro ignorance campaign by education itself right it's a complete distortion perversion inversion of what education is supposed to be doing put another way this re-education it makes education a handmaiden to a radical political program that doesn't care about education or all these other things citizenship and character academics but um this ra- a radical political program that is not popular with you know the average citizens um a radical political program that is not popular with parents right whether that is you know sort of globalist and we're seeing you know the w e f is in the news um a lot that we're seeing lately um you know or or whether whether it's global or whether it's somehow you know more american north american centric um that education can be used as an end run around national sovereignty and also around parents and this is something that uh, this goes back to Dewey right when I talked about dewey this was um you know it was it was suggested that um, Dewey was perfectly fine with this of using education to achieve or accomplish political goals because otherwise it takes too long right having to convince you know these average citizens or parents uh, to go along with a radical political program and to try to do it honestly and in the open through you know elections and uh, in a democratic way Um, this is just the ultimate shortcut to rapid political gains for, for for radical political programs you just go directly to the kids go into the schools and of course, you have to name and title things very carefully, right? I've talked about this before. That, you know, starting with something like the Patriot Act. I mean, you're, I mean, how can you be against it? You're not a patriot, you know. In the in the in the wake of nine eleven, um, and again, calling things, you know, child student, you know, centered. Um, yeah, it's just a, a there's a cleverness of naming things. Okay, so I've got another article I want to talk about here. Um, Another um, recent one. And it's about New York's war on meritocracy. It's by Wei Watchin. This is from City Journal. Um, Okay. And uh, it's just the conclusion here. Um, Quote, Excellence is under assault. Weak curricula. Further dumbed down. Grades inflated, gifted and talented programs hollowed out, and the number of charter schools capped, despite demonstrated excellence. All are being done in the name of equity. Aware that parents are wising up, equity advocates, activists, are learning to camouflage their agenda with the latest verbiage about social and emotional learning. But their quest to tear down excellence is unmistakable by its fruits. It's worth reading again, but I want to keep moving here. Uh, SEL, and we've seen on on Twitter lately, hashtag expel SEL. SEL is not what it seems to be. Or has been said, the contents do not match the box that is, the insidiousness of the real content is concealed by the bright, shiny packaging or marketing. Another quote. Families that want rigorous education for their children face a choice. They must either vote with their feet and leave the schools, or use the political process to remove equity ideology and restore meritocracy. Excellence, Is too important to ruin. Also, perhaps underestimated is the first option school choice to vote with their feet and leave the schools. This has been called the school choice trap that schools where equity and SEL are absent may be too hard to find, right? Because ed schools have been captured, and as I've been saying, Um, that this is the dominance of this paradigm uh, has been existence for a century it's not as though sel and equity or um, dei and sel are some sort of niche thing at some schools so ubiquitous is their presence in almost every school in north america so what i'm suggesting here with the school choice trap is that you know while uh, Chin is, is referring to, well, there, there are basically two ways you can go. Um, leaving your school and going to a new school, first of all, that might not be feasible for everybody to do, to just pick up and go. You also might not be able to find a school that is any better. Um, so again, that leaves us with her, her second point, the other option, to use the political process to remove equity ideology and restore meritocracy, because excellence is too important to ruin. So thus to to use the political process to remove equity ideology and restore meritocracy and excellence. That may be the best and perhaps the only choice. And again, this is exactly what Rufo was saying to kind of come full circle here. Okay, well, I've got a lot more to say, uh, but I'm going to pause and take a break and then i'll I'll break this up into smaller episodes um so stopping here thank you for listening